Open your Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy chapter number 2. Every time I turn to one of Paul's letters to Timothy, it's always special to me. Uh, the church where I was saved and the only pastor I ever had, we had, we had probably, a, I'd say at least a dozen young preachers in the church that were attending Baptist Bible College there in Springfield. And uh, out of all, all of them, I'm the only one he ever uh, referred to as his Timothy. I was saved there in the service under his preaching. He gave me opportunities when I can remember just not long after I was saved, I told him, I said, I want to teach a Sunday school class. And I, I told him, I said, I don't know anything about the Bible, but I, I want to I work with some young people and teach a Sunday school class. He said, well, how are you going to teach a Sunday school class if you don't know anything about the Bible? I said, I could come over one day each week, and you could give me the lesson, teach me the lesson, and I could teach it on Sunday. Now, it was about the dumbest thing he could have ever done, really, to do something like that. But he said, you know what? I, I'm going to do it. And that's exactly what we did. And he gave me opportunities to... Uh, to be able to serve and uh, only pastor that I've ever had and uh, we'd go away to Bible conferences, revival means wherever we went it always introduced me to the other preachers even the president of the college and what have you, he would introduce me as this is my Timothy and then give him give him my name, he wanted that to be known and uh, it meant something to me uh, before just after he died, he, he had left a book for me because he used to quote Sam Jones, the old preacher, circuit riding preacher, and he'd quote him so much and he knew how much I enjoyed uh, Sam Jones. And he, he left me the book by Sam Jones about his life and it was inscribed to, to my, my Timothy. So that's one reason that the letters to Timothy are so special to me. But there's another reason. And actually, it's, a, I think, a better reason, and that's because after I surrendered to preach, I found numerous verses in these two letters that gave me great encouragement. I think about 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, where he said, I thank God for putting me in the ministry. Paul didn't just decide one day, you know, I think I'll be a preacher. You know, the pay is really good and you're really popular and people will love you and respect you. I think I, I think I want to be a preacher. No, God put him in the ministry and it's God that puts men in the ministry, by the way. And then when I surrendered to preach, you know, that I just kept going through there and seeing all of the different verses where uh, the Lord said, uh, told Timothy about... He said, look, son, God's not giving you the spirit of fear. And boy, I'll tell you, whenever I surrendered to preach, my biggest obstacle was a spirit of fear. I scared death. I thought, you know, if God's ever made a mistake in his life, this is it. Because I'm the fellow that wouldn't even give an oral book report in high school and, and uh, took a D minus just to get through and, and just refuse. I told the teacher, you can fail me if you want to, but I'm not getting up in front of the class and giving no book report. And uh, so then God calls me to preach. Well, you know, uh, what do you do then? You better preach. Amen. So anyway, enough of that. Second Timothy chapter two, I'm going to begin reading. I wish I could read uh, all of chapter one and the first part of chapter two. But I want to pick it up in verse number 9. 
where Paul says to Timothy, wherein I suffer trouble. Don't we all? But I don't think ours could compare with what he had gone through. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. And therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake. That they may also obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying for if we be dead with him we shall also live with him. If we suffer we shall also reign with him. If we deny him he also will deny us. If we believe not. Yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. I want you to think with me this morning about that statement in verse 12, where Paul says, if we suffer, if we suffer, and let me tell you, there's no doubt about it. If we suffer, we are all going to suffer. Job said, man, this born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. That's just what life is. Life is made up of suffering, but that's the bad news. But the good news is we shall also reign with him. Now, if you look at the context, if you read chapter one and the first part of chapter number two, you'll see that Paul is giving encouragement, uh, you know, to, for Timothy to endure suffering for Christ. Uh, he, he needed that because Remember, Timothy is under intense pressure to compromise by the false teachers, and he is timid by nature. And so it's hard for him to confront conflict. So Paul is seeking to encourage him, helping him to endure hardships, and he reminds him of this glorious prospect that we're talking about this morning. We shall also reign with him. Until then... You could say, and the title of the message today is Training for Reigning. We are in training for reigning. And that's something that most people don't even realize because, you know, there are a lot of folks that uh, have the wrong idea about Christianity. But in training, that very word training, you know, is not something that, uh, that some of us are particularly fond of. I, I know people that are involved in exercise and strength training and physical activities that are very demanding and boy they get out there and jog three or four or five miles a day and it never sounded like fun to me there's a lot of work involved in training but training is something that is absolutely essential to anything that we do in life uh we have we have people here that are in different businesses and they don't just turn their business over to, to anyone. By the way, and nobody's asked me to do this, but I, it's a good place to, to mention it. I just learned the other day that uh, there are over 20,000 businesses in the state of Texas. Over 20,000. And the top rated business has a place to work based on a lot of different factors. But the number one top rated Rating went to John Weisenbaker's Weisenbaker Carpet Company out of all of the businesses in the state of Texas. Now, I mentioned that, number one, because it deserves to be mentioned, but more than that, 
you think about a business, and I can remember talking to Brother John, you know, about how, how it came to be back whenever he was laying the carpet instead of, instead of running the business. And can you imagine what might have happened to that business had he just, you know, decided one day that I think I'm going to start a carpet company and I need someone to run the everyday operations. I, I need someone, you know, to take care of, of, of all, all of this. And I'll, I'll just, I'll be the president. I'll just sit in my office and wait for the annual reports to come in. And so he finds some old boy down at the coffee shop he's never met before. And they get talking. They like each other. They both like to deer hunt. And, and uh, the old boy's looking for a job. And so Brother John says, you know what, I... I've got an opening. Why, why don't you come and run our company? Well, I, I don't know anything about Oh, that's all right. You kind of learn as you go. You can imagine what would happen to the company, right? I, I mean, it would have never got off of the ground. I'm certain, I'm certain that Brother John has some sort of protocol, whereas anybody in those positions have to prove themselves that they are prepared to do that job. I think about Brother Barry and all of the all the building that he has done in, in the in the Houston area. And can you imagine him going out and here he's on a multi-million dollar job and he's the he's the guy running the show and he's got all the blueprints there. But it so happens that uh, the superintendent has resigned or retired or got mad and left. He's not there. And so Brother Barry goes down to the 7-Eleven supermarket and looks around some old boy standing there on the street corner looking for a fix and he says you, you need a job oh yeah yeah i could use the job well i've got i got just a job for you and here i'll give you the address where i want the building here's the blueprints and uh, i want it done by a certain time you reckon it ever get done no it wouldn't there has to be some training some preparation now here's the thing about when we talk about life None of us have enough sense to know what we need. I'm sorry if that offended you, if that hurt your pride. I say none of us have enough sense to know exactly what we need. That's why we sometimes get so bent out of shape when God pulls the rug out from under us and all of a sudden things aren't going our way and we're wondering, well, why in the world this happened to me? This just doesn't seem fair at all. I'm talking about the troubles and the trials and the tribulations, you see. Those things that just leave us shaking our head and wondering, here's that big question, why? Why this? Why me? Why now? And so I'm going to get right to the point and say this in regards to what we're talking about. Every Christian is in need of training for reigning. Every Christian. That's true of all of us. Now, I want you to notice certain facts about this that we need to nail down to hang our hat on when we're going through these trying times. The first one is that the people of God suffer. We see this in the Bible. We see it in history. We see it by observation. We see it even through our experience, you see. And if you're looking for an easy religion, I wouldn't recommend Christianity it's not anything about it easy. Jesus made it perfectly clear that as long as we're in the world, we're going to have 
tribulation in this world. And far too many people today have the wrong idea about being a Christian because they mistakenly assume sometimes based on what some liberal pussyfooting preacher has said, they assume that becoming a Christian is a cure-all for all of their problems, and it's not. The truth is, becoming a Christian and living for Christ sometimes can be the very thing that causes us our greatest suffering. And that confuses a lot of people. And down through the ages, people have wondered, well, why do the wicked prosper? And why is it that the righteous suffer? And and so that's a question that no doubt we all ask at some time or another. But if we really studied the Bible, if we really understood, if we could see the service of suffering, we would understand. If anyone knew about suffering, it was Paul. I wish I had time to read all of the verses. It would would take several minutes just to read the verses related to the suffering that he went through. All of the beatings that he took and the imprisonments and so on and so forth. And, And so Paul is speaking from his experience, his afflictions. That word affliction means pressure. And whenever we're talking about pressure, it can refer to pain or suffering or anything that would cause us pain or suffering. And the good news about it is that the Bible assures us that pain can be profitable. In other words, suffering can serve a good purpose in our life. It can do so here on earth in in numerous ways. Whenever we talk about the matter of suffering, we always try to look at it from several different perspectives because some folks assume uh, that, well, if somebody is suffering, it must be because they've done something wrong. And, And sometimes that might be because God uses suffering to purge us from sin, but that's not the only reason. He also uses suffering to prepare us for service. He also used his suffering to prevent pride. He did that with the Apostle Paul, for example, in the thorn in the flesh. He also uses it to produce character. So here on earth, we learn that the suffering of God's people serves some good purpose. But not only does it serve a purpose here on earth, it serves a purpose for all of eternity. And that's what Paul was getting at there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 17 where he talks about, you know, our light afflictions worketh for us, worketh for, I mean it creates for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. So Paul did not think of these, these painful experiences as something working against him, but rather something that God was using for him and for all of eternity, a far more exceeding weight of glory. After we're saved, God begins that process of conforming us to the image of Christ. That's his purpose for each and every one of us. We've already talked about that repeatedly over the last seven weeks. That's, That's exactly what God's working on. If you don't know what God's up to in your life, If you're a Christian, God is shaping you, transforming you, working in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. That is his plan. So the plan of God 
is to conform us to the image of Christ. Because, listen, even though we've been saved, we have been affected by sin. And, and this conforming process I'm talking about is something... Now, I want you to really listen carefully for the next five or ten minutes. I want you to listen all the time, but I want you to be sure you get this. This conforming process that is brought about by suffering is something that can be accomplished only on earth. You know, when we get to heaven, we're going to be changed. We're going to be purified when we get there. But there are some things that cannot be accomplished there that must be accomplished while we are here. That means that our earthly experiences are much more important than what we might think. Let's take Christ for an example. Over in Hebrews chapter number 2 and verse number 10, speaking of Christ, it says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing about many sons unto glory. Now get this, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now look at chapter 5 and verse number 8. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all of them that obey him. I'll never forget the first time that that I read those verses and I, I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought, wait a minute, something really wrong here because we all know Jesus was perfect. He never sinned in any way whatsoever. And now here it is talking about him being made perfect by means of suffering. What we have to remember is that this has nothing to do with his moral character. It, it, it refers to the fact that his human experience was completed. That word perfect has to do with completion, bringing to maturity. His human experience was completed through the suffering. Remember, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. God himself took upon himself the form of flesh. He, he became a man here on this earth. So this has nothing to do with his moral character here. It has to do with him being prepared for his work in heaven as our intercessor. And that's why the Bible tells us that he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Some of you might be thinking as you're going through some great trial in your life, oh, nobody understands what I'm going through. Oh, listen, you're wrong. There is somebody that understands, and that's Jesus Christ. He knows. He knows exactly how we feel. That's why as our intercessor between us and the Father, he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's not indifferent to them. He does care and he knows what you're going through. So listen, just as he was prepared for that ministry that he is doing right now through suffering, it's crucial, it's crucial then that God prepares us for what we'll be doing in glory. You know, most of us are intent on wanting God to make us happy. There's not anything wrong with wanting to be happy, by the way. God wants you to be happy, but he wants you to find your happiness in him not in something else. But God's main goal is not to make you happy. 
God's goal is to make you holy. Because God knows that real genuine happiness comes as a result of holiness. There is no happiness for the child of God unless, unless there is holiness in their life. And so he's working to make us Christ-like, not to make us more comfortable. And so looking at it that way, and that's the way the Bible explains it, then everything in our life becomes meaningful. Because God appoints or God allows everything. There's nothing that happens that is by accident. So no experience is without purpose. And you know, just knowing that ought to really encourage us. Just knowing for certain that, that God has a purpose in what we're going through. Because one of the most aggravating things in life is wondering why am I going through this because, you know, I, I can't see any good purpose. I, I can't see how I can profit from it. I don't see how anybody else is going to profit from it. It's just absolutely making me miserable. I don't see any sense in it whatsoever. But whenever we understand that it's God as the great refiner purifying our lives to bring forth the pure goal in our life, the goal G-O-L-D, the gold, the purity that he desires, then all of a sudden our outlook on suffering begins to change. You see, if moral perfection and comfort were the only goals that God had for us, he'd just take us home to glory the minute we get saved. Man, I look back since the day I trusted Christ as my Savior and boy, I could just make a long, long, long list of things I suffered. Things that I've gone through I'd never want to go through again. I'd never choose for myself. Remember whenever I had, this is back in the old days when gallbladder surgery, they cut you from here all the way around here. i never forget that doctor saying, now, I need to explain something to you. Gallbladder surgery is more painful than heart surgery. He said it's not near as dangerous or anything like that, but the pain associated with him, I didn't, never had heart surgery, but let me tell you what, boy, that knocked me off of my feet. I'd never gone through that before. I'd, I'd been saved. Why, why didn't God just let me avoid that? Well, God knew I needed that experience. I could go on and on talking about all of the painful experiences that I've gone through. The Lord could have said the day I got saved, now look, I really love you, and I'm so glad you trusted my son as your Savior, and I'm going to spare you a lot of suffering. You're going to die today. Yeah, I, I'm just going to take you on home to heaven today. That way you won't have to suffer anymore. He didn't do that, and I know why. And Paul explained why when he said to die is gain, it's more profitable to die he said, but to abide here, to stay here, he said, he said, that's more needful. It's more important. Why? Because people need the Lord. And, and that's why we're here, to fulfill God's will for our life. And our present experiences that we're going through, they're all preparing us for a future work that God has for us. And that's why... I say that the prospect, the prospect 
is glorious. Notice what, what he said. If we suffer, what? We're going to reign with him. You know, I, I don't have the time to describe, you know, all of the prospects that awaits God's people. It, beyond my ability, I, I can't comprehend it. I can't explain it. Uh, but although we don't understand it, we can appreciate it and we can be encouraged by it. So let's look at what we do know. Now, here's what we do know as Christians. If you're a child of God, this is what's going to happen. Number one, you're going up. You're going up either, either by death or by the rapture. One of the two. Even though you're saved, you're going to die. Or Jesus is going to come as he promised you're going to come in the clouds in the air, and we're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Thank God. That's the believer's blessed hope. So we're going up one way or the other. And there we'll be with Christ. We'll be like Christ. We'll be joint heirs with Christ. And like that song that my wife loves so much, I can only imagine. Think about that. I can only imagine to be with Him, to see Him as He is. To actually, finally, at long last, be like Him. Yeah. Oh, that's the glory of the prospect that we have as a child of God. We're going up, but that's not the end of the story. We're coming back. You say, well, what are you talking about? When we go up, that's what we often refer to as the rapture. When God's people are all taken out of this world... The coming of Christ. Because then the Lord doesn't come to earth. He comes in the clouds of the air. And we're called up to meet him there. Right? Amen. Then begins the seven years of tribulation. Where the Antichrist steps on the scene. Can you imagine all of a sudden all the Christians disappearing. And that's going to happen. What's going to be the explanation for the people? Yeah, the boss goes into work on Monday morning. And nobody's there. Where'd everybody go? And then he begins to take, no, wait a minute. Those were the Christians that worked for me. And they're, they're all gone. Who's going to convince the general public that the rapture, that Christ came and all the Christians were taken? Oh, but there is somebody. And that's the Antichrist. And the Bible tells us that he shall deceive and they will believe the lie of the Antichrist. They will accept that explanation. So now we have a, a worldwide leader, somebody in charge, uniting the nations, bringing them together. Seemingly the solution that we've been looking for all of this time. And boy, does it ever, does it ever, does it ever go bad? During that time, the government, the government during that time will be ruled by the Antichrist. It's going to be horrible hell on earth. The Bible even speaks about mothers eating the flesh of their own children because they can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast. But wait a minute, I said we're coming back, right? Amen. Don't lose sight of that. When that seven-year period ends, that's when Christ returns, not for His saints, but with His saints. So here He comes, 
Riding on that great white horse with all of his people with him. This time he comes to earth. He puts his feet on planet earth. And now the government is going to be a theocracy. Yeah, no more democracy, no more socialism, no more of all of this other nonsense. It'll be a theocracy because Jesus Christ will rule and reign with a rod of iron for a thousand years. During that time, it says the devil is going to be bound. The curse is going to be removed. The nature of the animals are going to be changed. There will be no venom in the snake. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. The beast of the wild shall be led by a child for a thousand years. Are you with me? We keep thinking about longevity in this life and we think, man... If I could make it to a hundred, that'd be so wonderful. Wait a minute. That's nothing. You're going to be back someday for a thousand years on this same earth with Jesus Christ, a perfect government, no curse upon the earth, sickness removed, the deformed will be healed, longevity is going to be restored, light's going to be increased, and God's glory is going to be revealed. Yeah, it keeps getting better. We're going up and we're coming back. But according to what Paul said to Timothy, we're going to reign. He didn't just pull that out of the air. You find the same thing over in Matthew chapter number 19. The Lord himself telling us that we are going to rule and reign here up on this earth. And all of that, when you think about it, it sounds too good to be true. I'm really surprised that there's not more preaching about this because something this glorious ought to be in the spotlight. And I can guarantee you there are preachers been, been been at their church 20, 30, 40 years. They've absolutely never preached about what you're hearing right now. They never talk about that. It's almost like they don't either know it or they don't believe it, one of the two. You say it sounds so unreal. Yes, it is. Let me give you some facts about it, though. These are facts straight from the Bible. I said we're going to reign. And, and the first thing you need to understand is that everyone in heaven won't be the same. So well, how do you know that? Well, from what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And there Paul is speaking about, you know, the, our future and eternity and what have you. And he tells us that speaking about our glorified bodies, that just as one star differs from the other, we're all going to be different. You see, there's different degrees of magnitude in the stars. Some of them, all of them are different. They all don't shine with the same brightness, you see. So what we experience here is going to make a difference there. And although we are all going to be like Christ, now listen carefully, even though we're all going to be like Christ, our capacity to enjoy Christ is going to be different. Now make no mistake about it, heaven is going to be inexpressibly glorious for everyone, but not everyone will be the same. We'll all be like Jesus but we won't be Jesus. Are you with me? We'll all be like Christ. But we all won't be exactly like one another. 
For some, the Bible tells us there are going to be crowns. There are going to be rewards, but not for others. And, and, you know, there's another difference here that we need to understand, and that is while everyone will be perfect, and everybody will be perfectly satisfied, there are some people that will have a greater capacity for joy than, than the others do. We'll all have our cup of joy, but some folks are going to have bigger cups. And the wonderful thing about heaven is nobody will be envious of the other person. Oh, he's enjoying this more than me. This, this isn't fair. It won't be like that in heaven. It'll be perfection there. But I'm telling you that there will be a greater capacity for joy for some than there will for, for others. And that capacity for joy in heaven is going to be determined by our experiences, our faithfulness, our spiritual maturity while we're here on this earth. Don't tell me it doesn't make a difference. We need to get rid of that idea that says, well, preacher, I just want to go to heaven. Well, I'm glad you do. That's, that's wonderful. But God wants you to know there's more to it than that. Amen. He wants heaven to be all that it can be for you. And for us to just sit back and say, well, I know I'm going to heaven. I ain't worried about anything else. All this spiritual maturity stuff you talk, keep talking about. And some of you are wondering, how long are you going to keep harping on that? I want to keep harping on it until, until there's some evidence that we're getting the message. Because if we're not maturing spiritually after we're saved, then we are backslidden as, as believers. Man, it's quiet in here. There ought to be progress. The Bible calls it sanctification. That growing in the likeness of Christ. So during the millennium, the thousand years, we're going to rule and reign with him. Now, you say, well, preacher, what are we going to do? I'm not, I'm not sure. We, we might have the future governor of Texas here this morning. I don't know. I have no idea. Because remember, they say, well, who are we going to rule over? Remember, when he comes back to this earth after the tribulation, it's going to be inhabited by all of these people that are here. Millions, billions of people that are here. And the Bible talks about the fact that, you know, some's going to rule over angels, for example. And it talks about us ruling and reigning uh, over others. It talks about the uh, the, the Jews reigning over the Gentiles, and it goes on and on and on. The saints are going to rule over the cities. So it does make a difference. It makes a difference during the thousand-year millennial reign. Because we're coming back, remember? But then there's another thing about this prospect, and that's we're going in. So what do you mean? We're going in because... At the end of the thousand years, the old devil's going to be loosed for a season, and boy, God's, God's going to cast him then into the bottomless pit, and it'll all be over for him. And the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is going to come down from heaven, and I believe it's going to touch planet earth right there at Jerusalem. And the saints will go back and forth as it were at their pleasure 
from this changed earth. Remember, the old earth is going to be renewed so as by fire. And he said, I'll create a new heaven. That's the atmospheric heaven. Got all this junk up there right now from all of the, all of the stuff that we put up there. God's going to clean all of that up. He's going to clean this earth up. And we're going to be in that new Jerusalem then. We're going in the city four square as heaven, as it were, comes down to earth. Say, what are we going to do? We're going to serve him day and night forever. Say, how are we going to serve him? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I don't need to know. It doesn't matter. One thing about it, that word serve, by the way, also carries with it the a certain implication as to our worship, an attitude of worship for the Lord. And I always think of Revelation chapter number 5, when the heavenly choir is all gathered together, all of God's people are gathered around the throne. All eyes are upon Jesus. And they begin to sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Over and over and over again, down through the ages, down There will be no ages down through what we would call years and throughout all of eternity giving praise to the Lord. Now, that's the prospect of God's children, but there's a problem. Always a problem. You see, God's given us all of these possibilities, but as you might expect, there's a problem. The problem's with man. It's never with God. And the problem is that some people act as though their level of spiritual maturity doesn't make any difference when you get to heaven. I've just tried to show you that it does make a difference when you get to heaven. And we ought to have an interest in what we're going through. And I'm praying that someone, even if only one person, will be challenged in some way to grow as much as possible and And one of the big problems is a lot of folks refuse to accept what God allows with the right attitude. We we believe in the sovereignty of God. We know He's in control. We know that whatever happened to us didn't just happen. It didn't just strike us out of the blue. But no, there is a God. And the God who created heaven and earth is in charge. And He either allowed it or He appointed it. But one way or the other, it was not an accident. And whenever we resent what God allows, all of a sudden we begin to complain about our hardships and our difficulties. We get bitter instead of better, and we stop growing, and we stay stuck on stunted. We fail to become all that we could be. What we need... Is the attitude of Paul. He said in Romans 5.13, we glory, that means to brag and to boast. What does it take to make you boast and brag? And He said, we glory in tribulations. Well, I can remember as a young, young preacher, I'd go to work all day and I'd come home at night. I didn't go to Bible college. I'd come home at night. Bev would have supper ready. Spend a few minutes with her and the kids and do whatever I needed to do if nothing was going on at church. 
And you get in my room, little upstairs room out there, big old house that we'd rented out there in Willard, Missouri, and I'd go up there and I'd study till midnight or one o'clock. And I'd run into verses like this and I'd think, this, this sounds crazy. How, how can it be that we glory in tribulations? Well, over 50 years ago now, I made one of the greatest discoveries of my life, and it happened to be when I was studying 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. I was studying there, and Paul is going down through this chapter, and he's enumerating the problems and the difficulties that he's going through, and it's, it's just horrible to think about what that man suffered. And then all of a sudden, he, he says... He says those things, those light afflictions. Light afflictions. Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what I'm going through, man. Nothing light about it. It's just painful. It hurts. He said, no, it's just light afflictions work for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. And all of a sudden, I began to see things that I had never seen before, and it all began to fit together because I was like everybody else. I didn't understand why God lets his children suffer like he... I couldn't understand that. And people would come to me as a pastor and ask me counsel, Pastor, why is God letting this happen to me? And I had to say, I, I, I don't know. But all of a sudden, everything changed. And all of a sudden, I began to look at life and everything else in a totally different way. When I begin to see what Paul was saying here, that our present experiences prepare us for our future service in eternity. Shortly after that, I was preaching a revival meeting here in Texas, by the way. I, I was, at that time, I was pastoring in Missouri. I come down here and preach a revival meeting for someone whose name I won't mention and it so happened that his wife was dying. He knew it. She knew it. And I can remember sitting there at the, at the breakfast table with them and sharing with them what God had shown me through these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That our suffering is not in vain. Believe me. I don't understand. I can't understand why my wife is suffering like she is. I don't understand that. I lay there at 2 o'clock this morning crying and praying and begging God to please let her be happy and healthy, Lord. But if she can't be healthy, let her be happy, Lord. I just want her to enjoy life. I don't understand that. I don't see the reason. But listen, we don't need to know the reason, the particular reason. We just need to know there is a reason. And it's a good one because it's God's reason. I'll leave you with these three things there in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. Paul speaking about these afflictions in verse number 17, he uses the word light. Just trivial, light afflictions. Well, how can that be? They are light whenever we compare them to what is gained from them 
in comparison to what we receive in eternity. They're they're like nothing compared to what it's going to be like. And then they're transforming. He says they worketh for us. I I know it seems like that they're working against you. But, But really they're not. If you could see, and we can't, but if we could see the big picture, if we could stand yonder in eternity and look back on what we're going through now, we would understand that these things were transforming us without us even realizing it. But then there's a third thing he mentions here, and that is their temporal. Notice he says, but for a moment, compared to eternity... Our trials here are but for a fleeting moment. Our short-lived grief here cannot be compared to the eternal glory that awaits us. That's why he said, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. He's telling us that our focus should be on what we can't see. Our focus should be on that which is to come, not what we're going through now. Often wonder how Moses held up under the pressure. Don't you? All those people murmuring and complaining about him after all the good he had done. After all he had given up for them. They want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. How did he endure all of that? Well, the Bible says in Hebrews eleven twenty seven, he endured by seeing him who is invisible. You say, well, how do you do that? How do you see him who is invisible? Well, like the old song says, you turn your eyes upon Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keeping our focus on him. And notice when he uses that word look, that's more than a glance. It is a, it is a gazing upon. It is a close scrutiny, a careful examination. And so we have to look at every problem, every difficulty in light of our prospects in heaven. Because in these things we find the, listen carefully, in these things we find the answer to those questions For which we have no answers. Why do the righteous suffer? We don't have an answer for that. But this is the answer. And boy if we can ever get that truth. Really driven home in our heart. In a real way. All of a sudden. Romans 8.28. Will take on a whole new meaning. Yeah. Because he's not referring. He says all things work together for good. To those who love the Lord of the called according to his purpose. That's not talking about just good here on earth. The greater good comes whenever we are in heaven. When we are in eternity. You say, oh preacher. All that really sounds good. But in fact it sounds too good to be true. I'm not sure you got it right. Well, if you have trouble thinking that this is true or not. Just study Paul's life. Study his life. Here's a man who who said, I've learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. Are you there? He said, I take pleasure in my infirmities. I rejoice in my tribulation. 
Now, if he could do it, you can do it if you're a child of God. Because we have the same God. And the assurance that your pain and your problems are profitable will provide you with peace. A peace that the Bible says passeth all understanding. That assurance. Are we not to live, as the Bible says, we're to live by what? By faith, not by sight. And that assurance that whatever I'm going through, the pain and the problems, they're profitable. Profitable in eternity for eternity. Now there's one last thing and I'm through. And that's the promise. Look at verse number 13. The problems with man, we just, for whatever reason, we refuse to embrace what God has given us. If we believe not yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. I think the point is that even if we doubt, even if we fail, God is still faithful. In fact, did you know that one of the names of Jesus is faithful and true? He's faithful and true. I love what old Dr. W.A. Criswell said many years ago. He said, our Lord is not quicksand. He is a rock, a foundation. Our Lord is not a meteor, but he is a star in the heavens forever, fixed and eternal. Wow. I think about that, and it raises this question. What are you building your hopes upon? Well, if it isn't Christ, you're going to fail. Our only hope of help is to build our lives upon Christ, the rock of ages, because he never fails. In verse 19 of this same chapter, it says, The foundation of God standeth sure. That's why we sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Oh, listen, set all of your hopes upon Christ this morning. And if you're a child of God, he'll give you a peace that other people cannot understand. They might even think you're faking it. How can anybody be going through what you're going through and have peace in their heart and joy in their soul? How can it be? It can be because we become willing to accept whatever God allows because we know that he's going to use that experience for us in eternity in a way that is, can only be described as glorious. And if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, you're building your life on the shifting sands of this old world. Let me tell you, one of these days you're going to be so sorry. It doesn't have to be that way. You can build your life on Christ, that solid rock. And, and you can leave here today with joy and peace. And all of the things I've been talking about will be, can be true of you, will be true of you. And all of a sudden, maybe for the first time in your life, life will start to make sense to you. Remember, God's not trying to make you happy. He's trying to make you holy. He's not trying to make you comfortable. He's trying to make you Christ-like. 
And by the way, he's willing to go to any length except deny himself. And even whenever we fail, and boy, we do, somebody says, oh, it was so horrible that Peter denied the Lord. Yeah, it was. And it's so horrible that you and I sometimes doubt our Lord. We, we look at a precious promise and then, then we act like God must be lying because we're not willing to accept it. But boy, that minute that we, we rest all of our hopes upon His promises, the God that cannot lie, that's when the peace of God floods our soul and all of a sudden we're able to enjoy the life that God's given us even though it hurts. Because one of these days we're going to hurt no more. We'll be with Him. We'll be like Him. We'll see Him as He really is. Would you stand with us please as Tim and the musicians come? We're going to sing a verse of invitation and especially if you're here today and you're not saved. Would you come say, Preacher, I'm so tired. I'm just so tired of not having a firm foundation in my life. I live each day in fear and doubt. Life has no meaning or no purpose for me. And, and Preacher, I, I, I just need to settle that. And you can. You can if you'll come to Christ. And we're going to give you this opportunity to do that. And maybe, maybe you've already been saved, but all of a sudden... God's used His Word this morning. To, the Holy Spirit has plunged the sword of His Word into your heart. And all of a sudden, now things are coming together and you, you're seeing things for what they really are. You just might want to bow your head and say, Lord, forgive me for ever doubting You. Help me to accept whatever You allow because I know You don't make any mistakes. Father, Glorify Yourself, bless Your people, and save the lost. For we beg it in Jesus' name. Amen.